The third panel is titled Singapore and the Region. The chairperson of this panel is Professor Chan Hing Chi, Singapore's ambassador at large. She will open the panel discussion and introduce the speakers. Well, good afternoon. We have all had an excellent lunch and I thank IPS for letting us eat in peace. There was no talk, you know, and uh, here we are for the first session of the afternoon. Now, I must say, I feel very privileged to be chairing this session today on Singapore and the region because I'm the only woman on this year's lineup of moderators and speakers. <laughs> Janadas, you have to do better than that. <laughs> but I do feel very privileged because I am chairing a session where the two speakers are the leading uh, strategic thinkers of the region. I have with me Dr. Marty, former Foreign Minister of Indonesia from the, for the years 2009 to 2014 in the government of President Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono. Now, Dr. Marty is a career diplomat. He was ambassador to the United Kingdom for Indonesia and he was also the Indonesian Perm Rep to the United Nations, where he served till 2009 and returned home to be foreign minister. But uh, since leaving uh, his position, he has been appointed to the Secretary General of UN Secretary General's High Level Advisory Panel on Mediation. Now, what is important is that recently, Dr. Marty published a book entitled, Does ASEAN Matter? Now, I have here on my right, Bilahari Kausikan, whom you all know, also a career diplomat. And he served as the ambassador to the Russian Federation, and then as permanent representative also to the United Nations. He has been long with the foreign ministry and became the permanent secretary of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He was my boss. He was also my student. <laughs> I taught him. <laughs> Serious, in the university. I was his lecturer. I was very young then. Still very young. <laughs> and... Um, he became uh, ambassador in large after his, uh, he stepped down as permanent secretary, but he has finished his stint as the ambassador at large at the foreign ministry. Now he is chairman of the Middle East Institute, and he tells me he's doing his darnest best to avoid taking up a job. <laughs> <laughs> the Bilahari also has published a book recently and is titled, Singapore is not an island. Now, both these write, uh, diplomats, writers, writer diplomats, given what they have written, are really well equipped to
discuss and speak on Singapore and the region and what is happening in the region. Now, this morning, we had a robust discussion in the first session, Singapore and the World. And then we had a very interesting discussion on Singapore and international economics. I think some of the themes of Singapore and the world will be reflected in this session uh, this afternoon. We all know Singapore, Southeast Asia, Asia, ASEAN, is the theater of great power rivalry. It is the place where the big ideas, big economic ideas and social trends economic trends and social trends are sweeping over and reshaping. And so it is an area where a lot of things are happening. And what sense do we make of what is happening? In a sense, this is an area which will see disruption. It will not be business as usual. But the disruption doesn't only come from external forces, US, China, globalization, whatever. It is also from within the region. Because Southeast Asia is a region of a heterogeneous societies and great diversity. It is a region where race and religion are always salient sources of conflict, whether it is Myanmar, Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines, Singapore, or Vietnam. And it is a place of rising nationalisms. It is a place of creeping protectionism and a place that is coping with globalization and above all, a region of rising expectations, young populations, and a growing middle class. How do we collaborate and how do we cooperate in such a region? And how do we deal with the rise of China and the disputes, the tensions between the United States and China? I hope the two speakers will address the, these topics head on. So I will let uh, Bilahari Kausikan um, start and then give the floor to Dr. Marty afterwards. Bilahari. Thanks, Hengchi. Uh, I'll get straight to the point. Singapore is in Southeast Asia. That's a geographic fact. But whilst we are in Southeast Asia, we are not always off Southeast Asia and cannot be. Uh, and there are three key factors that make Singapore something of an anomaly in Southeast Asia and prescribe why we must always be something of an outlier in Southeast Asia even though we are part of the region. The first factor is an ethnic one. Singapore is an ethnic Chinese majority sovereign state. In fact, the only one in the world outside Greater China. But Southeast Asia is a region where the Chinese are not always a welcome minority. Secondly, although we are an ethnic Chinese majority state, Singapore is organized horizontally on the basis of multiracial meritocracy. Now, 
Multiracial meritocracy in Singapore is not perfect, but there is no perfection to be found on earth. But it is a principle that we take seriously, and we live in a region where every other state is either formally or informally organized on a very different principle. And that principle is ethnic or religious or both hierarchy. Um, you, know, you know all the examples, I think. You know, Malaysia is... Uh, in Malaysia, ethnic hierarchy is enshrined as a formal part of the Constitution, Article 153. Uh, Indonesia's former organizing ideology is Pancasila, which is, in theory, horizontal, but the informal hierarchy of pribumi over non-pribumi is a political reality. And you can say the same of almost any other country. Thailand, it is ethnic Buddhist Thai over the Malay Muslim South. Uh, Myanmar, it is the ethnic Burma, uh, who are Buddhists over the Rohingya and other minorities. Um, and this is true of the broader region, in fact. And I can go on in Southeast Asia, but I think that's the point. But this is true in, in the broader region. In China, it is clearly a hierarchy of Han over non-Han. And even in Japan, which is a liberal democracy, it's clearly a hierarchy of the ethnic Japanese over, say, Japanese, uh, Japanese citizens of Korean or, or, or Chinese descent. There are some of those. Now, together, these two factors have historically led to Singapore being regarded with a certain degree of suspicion by other countries in the region. The suspicion at one time was that we were a third China, and other countries projected a great deal of their suspicions of the PRC and their attitudes towards their own ethnic Chinese minorities on us. And Singapore, the Singapore after independence, the Singapore government devoted a great deal of energy and effort to trying to dispel this perception of Singapore. And I think as far as the governments of Southeast Asia are concerned, we have been largely successful. Uh, I don't think any government, and I stress that word, in Southeast Asia uh, thinks of us as a third China and understands that there is now a distinct Singapore identity uh, separate from the various ethnic identities. But those are the attitudes of the government. I am less confident that the attitudes of the populations of other Southeast Asian countries have changed. Uh, perhaps they will in time, but I don't think we are there yet. Um, a complication, no, at the same time, uh, the attitudes of Southeast Asia towards the PRC has changed. It is no longer one of unmitigated suspicion, but, but the change has not been complete or entire. Some of you may know of a recent ISIS Yusuf Isha Institute survey uh, that revealed that while it is broadly acknowledged that China is an important and influential actor in Southeast Asia, this perception coexists with uh, significant skepticism about China. Um, what this means 
is that the emergence and of the and acceptance of a distinct Singapore identity separate from the ethnic uh, composition of Singapore is not to be taken for granted and has to be maintained by conscious efforts of policy. Uh, in fact, I think this is so even internally within Singapore because don't forget, we are only 54 years old. <laughs> and that's not a very long time in the history of a country. And while acceptance of a distinct Singapore identity is real and an important development, being young, I suspect it is still relatively shadow and therefore malleable. <laughs> a further complication is the fact that US-China relations have clearly entered into a new long-term phase of heightened strategic competition. And this adds significantly to the complexity of the region and complexity of countries' decisions on how to position themselves in the midst of this great power competition. The obvious, the obvious manifestation of that is the trade war, but the term trade war is something of a misnomer because Trade is an instrument, the objective is strategic competition. And another factor that, that cautions against taking a distinct Singapore identity for granted is the resurgence of what is generally known as populism, but I think is more accurately uh, described as the politics of nativism of, or indigeneity in key countries in Southeast Asia. And this is part of a global trend that shows no sign of abating. By the way, it, Singapore too is not unaffected by this trend, although in, as yet, a fairly mild form. Now the third factor that makes Singapore unique in Southeast Asia is the fact that we are a city-state with no natural hinterland within our sovereign territory. Now, you take a small city-state cannot take its international relevance or even its regional relevance for granted. Relevance is an artifact that has to be created by human endeavor and having been created has to be maintained by human endeavor. What does this mean? What's the implication of having to create and sustain relevance for yourself? What is the implication of being something of an anomaly in Southeast Asia? It means that while Singapore is in Southeast Asia as a geographic fact, we must always look beyond Southeast Asia to make a living and to ensure our security. And this is a strategic imperative. Another way of stating the same point is that we have to be different. We have to be extraordinary. We have to leverage on our difference to be extraordinary. We cannot be just like any other country in Southeast Asia for the simple reason if we were just like any other country in Southeast Asia, uh, why would anybody want to deal with us rather than our larger neighbors who are furthermore all endowed with natural resources? Uh, and we have to acknowledge there is a certain tension between uh, these imperatives. There's a certain tension between our difference, a certain tension between the imperative of being extraordinary and a certain tension and the fact that we are in Southeast Asia. Uh, a tension deriving from that fundamental fact that if we were just like anybody else, we would soon find ourselves at risk of irrelevance. Uh, 
Being extraordinary, therefore, does not necessarily make us universally loved. But it cannot be helped. That is the existential condition of being Singaporean. My final point, or final two points, rather. What do we do about it? First, the management of these complexities depends, first of all, on ourselves. Uh, maintaining what makes us unique, and in particular, how we organize ourselves as a society uh, on the ba uh, horizontally on the basis of multiracial meritocracy. If we can do that, I think we can manage the other complexities. If we cannot do that, we are done for. And don't forget, as I said, I should remind you, we live in an era where identities of various kinds, nativisms of different kinds, indigeneities of different kinds are being asserted globally, and I don't see why we should be exempted from these global trends. Uh, if we can be ourselves, we can maintain ourselves. The second point is that ASEAN is a vital and irreplaceable means of managing the tensions that I mentioned. Uh, and there is no substitute. Pak Mati, who has, as Hengchi mentioned, written a very good book on ASEAN, which I commend to all of you. No, he didn't ask me, nor did he pay me to say that. I sincerely mean it, uh, which you all should read will no doubt speak in greater detail on ASEAN, and as he is in many ways Mr. ASEAN, I will leave that to him. And I will just end by saying that while ASEAN is and must remain central to Singapore's foreign policy, it is a tool, one tool of many, and there are things that ASEAN can do and do very well, and there are some things that ASEAN cannot do or will have limitations in what it was able to do. And we should never lose sight of that fact. A vital tool, an irreplaceable tool, is still a tool. It is not a panacea for all that ills the world, that all that ills Singapore, and all that ills the region. Uh, and it will be dangerous for Singapore and Singaporeans to confuse a very useful, indeed vital tool, for some kind of magic nostrum that cures everything. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Bilahari, for really using, you know, leaving us with eight, eight extra minutes, which means the audience will have more time for questions later. Now I give the floor to uh, pa Marty. Well, thank you very much. Uh, for giving me the floor. Um, deeply appreciative and especially wish to acknowledge uh, the presence amidst us of uh, Minister Vivian, whom I admire very much for his leadership of ASEAN. Uh, at the risk of oversimplification, uh, I wish to share at the beginning some general impressions of what, what we have or the situation that confronts us today, and, and I must emphasize this is uh, almost a caricature and at the risk of oversimplification. Uh, one impression that I have is uh, the reality of the convergence between local, national, regional, and global. 
although all of us are in a way used to thinking in terms of such layers, especially those who are in the foreign policy, uh, in practicing foreign policy, uh, in my view, increasingly, the world that we are confronting and facing is one where convergence between these levels are becoming the increasingly dominant feature. It means, for instance, one may have a phenomena that began, begins initially at the local level that can quickly spiral out of control to become national, wide, nationwide, region-wide, and global. And of course, the most dramatic example of such situation would be developments in the Middle East, for instance. Uh, the initial optimism associated with the so-called Arab Spring local initially in countries such as Tunisia, but then quickly enveloped the whole country, the whole region, and beyond becoming a perfect storm of geopolitical tensions. The second convergence that I wish to identify against at the risk of oversimplification is the convergence between the economy, political security, and social domain. Again, all of us are trained and are encouraged to think as if these are clearly identifiable uh, pursuit, but actually, as a matter of fact, they are mutually, uh, their impact on one another, and the resolution of one issue tend to require uh, a whole of a, a holistic and comprehensive perspective. And finally, and not least, is the quality of change. If there is one feature of our world today is how change is essentially permanent. Uncertainty is a given. However, I think there is a qual important qualitative difference between recognizing uncertainty and a state of drift. A state of drift follows lack of policy coordination, consequence of policy incoherence, and even policy inconsistencies. Those three features that, uh, that I mentioned, convergence, local, national, regional, global, convergence, economic, political, social, and uh, element of constant change, at the same time does not suggest that our world is increasingly uh, more connected. Actually, and somewhat uh, worryingly, while the logic suggests that we should therefore be promoting a greater sense of cooperative partnership, what we are seeing at the moment is actually greater divergence. The reality of connectivity between the, that of the type that I mentioned before, instead of promoting, emphasizing the need for, for instance, multilateralism, cooperative partnership, we are seeing more uh, unilateral tendencies, a me-first orientation by countries. Uh, earlier this morning, Pa Giorgio spoke eloquently on the decline of uh, multilateralism. Uh, I would wholly, I mean, wholeheartedly agree with that, except to simply add that actually, in my view, it's not only multilateralism versus unilateralism, it's the entire uh, pursuit of managing issues through diplomacy, uh, the art of 
managing disputes through diplomacy, through communications, are increasingly being lost. We have we had a time when differences are accepted as a, as a fact of life, but we manage those differences. But now we have situation where countries differ, and but they communicate by means other than diplomacy. They Words matter, and yet somehow words have become increasingly sidelined in the discourse among nations. And not least, of course, and this is the bit that I wish to, to spend some time more on, the reality that, uh, of increasing geopolitical tensions, especially in our part of the world. In other words, in my view, whether it be countries like Singapore, like Indonesia, or regions like ASEAN, we must find a way of managing the nexuses, managing the interlinkage between the different layers and the different themes. Unless we have a way of managing them, synergizing them in a, in a coherent manner, then we will be challenged as a result. The geopolitical dynamics, I won't have to spend much time on the US-China uh, dimension because we have, spoke, we have heard extensively throughout this morning a reality that is much recognized, the manifestation uh, obvious to all of us, whether it be in, on trade, on currency, on technology, on geopolitics, South China Sea, East China Sea, this, uh, the developments on the uh, straight, uh, uh, cross straits, the Korean Peninsula, Indo-Pacific, Manifestation crystal clear. Implications on ASEAN, all of us are ex very aware of how such push and pull can, without alternative vision by ASEAN, pull ASEAN apart. But in my view, the, the future is not one where one of these sides, either US or China, will obtain permanent or definitive ascendancy over the other. I think it is a false choice for us of, to predict as if one will be preeminent and therefore we must be on the right side of this competition. I believe that the region, as it has been in the past, has defied dominance by one particular power, and there is no reason to assume that the future will be otherwise. And more, more importantly, in the 21st century, the nature of power itself has changed. The currency of power is no longer, for instance, military or economic in the traditional sense. Power is more diffused, is more situation-specific, and therefore, in my view, when we speak of US-China, it's not anticipating which of them will prevail, but to ready ourselves to a period of sustained turbulence. One will sometime get, obtain ascendancy over the other in some areas, and then uh, in different situations, uh, vice versa. In other words, for us in the region, I think we have to be smart in identifying intent. Not to speak of balance of power, but to speak of dynamics of power. 
we shouldn't be too over-preoccupied by looking at quantitative, measurable capacities, but we must apply our capacity to decipher intent. This is where diplomacy becomes extremely important, to truly understand what makes United States and China tick. And the second point that I wanted to, to say on the geopolitics is that there are other bilaterals out there. Yes, of course, US-China, extremely important, extremely defining, almost existential importance to many countries. But what of US-Russia? We are seeing evidence of return to Cold War dynamics in other parts of the world, but thankfully not quite yet in this part of the world. What of China, Japan? Over the past few weeks, we, we are beginning to see fragile evidence of a potential appeasement, a potential rapprochement between the two countries. Surely, this is a window that ASEAN countries of this region must quickly lock in, help locked in. China-Japan relations, in my view, whether it's positive or negative, will have equally important impact on us than the much often discussed US-China. India-China, Japan, Republic of Korea. The past couple of days we've seen, been witness to some episodes between the two countries. Those episodes matter to us. In other words, without going through the list, the point that I wanted to say is, let's broaden our horizon. Let's have instruments to deal not only with US-China, invest in mechanism, modalities to deal with all these other bilaterals that will be confronting us in the future. Which leads me to the last segment of my remarks, which is to do with the policy response by ASEAN. In my view, passivism by being passive by ASEAN is not a smart option. ASEAN in the past has demonstrated its capacity to be transformative. The formation of ASEAN itself, 1967, for instance, the TAC in 1976, the expansion of ASEAN, the ASEAN Community Project, all of them have one overriding quality, a quality of can-do spirit. ASEAN leaders simply not simply take the situation as it was, but had a bit more aspirational and transformative outlook. Often ahead of time, sometimes it may prove to be redundant, to be not quite what was needed, but we, were, we cannot be accused of being passive. And even in our external affairs, so-called external affairs, we have seen ASEAN growing in confidence, initially promoting the idea of neutrality for Southeast Asia. The original Zopfan idea speaks of us Southeast Asia being neutralized. Imagine that. So it is an active term. We are seeking countries to neutralize us. 
because it's too complicated, the world is, and we don't want to be, uh, be torn apart. But then we develop the idea of resilience for the region. We develop, we develop the idea even more ambitious of centrality. The vehicles are well known. For instance, the ASEAN Plus 3s, the ASEAN Pluses, the ASEAN Regional Forum, the East Asia Summit process. But the point that I wanted to emphasize is that ASEAN demonstrated more than convening power. We created homes for countries to deliberate, to meet, but more than simply be an efficient event organizer, we also provided intellectual geopolitical leadership. We shape and mold. TAC was externalized. We pushed the non-ASEAN countries into a competitive, benign dynamics competing with one another to outdo one another to exceed to the TAC. And I believe we can do the same. Thankfully, the Indo-Pacific notion, for instance, that is now much talked about, actually is already provided for within the East Asia Summit. Ambassador Ong Keng Yong is here amidst us. I recall when we discussed the various permutations of the East Asia Summit back in early 2000s. It was a lengthy debate that eventually resulted in the East, East Asia Summit, yet at the same time including countries like India, Australia, and New Zealand. It was clearly and inherently and purposefully Indo-Pacific in our outlook. So in my view, turning to the policy response, rather than at this critical and very extremely uncertain juncture, opening a Pandora's box, having a very general meaning of life question about what is Indo-Pacific and what is not Indo-Pacific, empower the East Asia Summit. Then we can really deliver on ASEAN centrality because we already have it. All the countries of the principles of the Indo-Pacific are in the East Asia Summit. The ASEAN Regional Forum, which we already have, are also contain many countries of both the Pacific and the Indian Ocean. But we need to deliver substance. We need to make it worthwhile for leaders every year to come to our capitals beyond the, the procedural issues on empowering forums such as the East Asia Summit I believe ASEAN must be crystal clear in identifying what are the nature of the problems. Otherwise, we will have wonderful documents, proposals and suggestions looking for problems. The problems must be identified before we come to the instruments. And in my view, the problems among them is actually things like trust deficit amongst nations in this part of the world, the lack of crisis management capacity in this part of the world. I mentioned earlier there was an episode, there's been an episode between China, pardon, between Japan and Republic of Korea, and uh, an episode elsewhere involving countries of Northeast Asia. And yet, there is a lacune of action 
time-sensitive forum to be able to discuss these developments. We have to wait for another summit, in the case of East Asia Summit, towards the end of the year. Things happen during a year. We cannot wait for a summit at the end of a year before we can begin to discuss these matters. But all in all, um, it is a challenging environment, but ASEAN has in the, in the past, whenever doubts have been suggested of its uh, continued uh, relevance, ASEAN has managed to reinvent itself and prove its relevance. Uh, over the past year, uh, Singapore has not only chaired ASEAN, but it has tremendous, shown tremendous uh, leadership of ASEAN, uh, introducing areas of cooperation hitherto absent, uh, and which is a mark of uh, leadership uh, by, as, by member state of ASEAN. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much, Padmati. Another diplomat who keep, not only keeps to time, but saves time. So we have time for the audience. <laughs> now, let me, as the chairman, exercise my prerogative. I thought I would begin by posing two questions one each, uh, two rounds to our speakers, and then uh, open the session to the audience, members from the floor. Let me begin with a question for Bilahari. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm asking a question, Bilahari, that the audience would have wanted you to address in your speech, which you did not. Uh, when we speak of ASEAN, and ASEAN has had uh, many successes, you've said that uh, ASEAN is vital, is a great tool, and Padmati has also, you know, talked of the importance of ASEAN. But we've seen many conflicts in the past, and different kinds of conflicts. In the scheme of ASEAN conflicts, where would you place the Malaysian-Singapore disputes? Well... I didn't speak about it because you told me on Sunday you're going to ask me this question, so I reserved it for the question. <laughs> <laughs> I revealed a secret. <laughs> okay, I, I was nice to him, you know. Mm. I didn't want to surprise him. Yeah. Um, I think ASEAN in general, by its very existence, uh, mitigates conflicts. It is a factor that people engage in bilateral disputes cannot entirely um, ignore and therefore um, um, it shapes their behavior and, and generally it shapes their behavior more in the direction of moderation. Uh, but ASEAN has not resolved bilateral disputes. It, and I don't think ASEAN is going to play anything more than the very general role um, I mentioned at the very beginning, uh, in the current round of Malaysia-Singapore tensions over port limits and you know, um, uh, restrictions on airspace. Why do I say that? First of all, don't forget ASEAN is a collection of sovereign states. Therefore, ASEAN can do no more than its members agree by consensus to do. 
uh, and therefore ASEAN is, a, I may refer to it several times, as a tool, as an instrument, which sometimes countries will find appropriate, and sometimes they and will use, and sometimes not appropriate. And I don't think uh, Malaysia is going to find ASEAN appropriate. We have to understand the origins of this bout of bilateral tensions. These issues are not new. They are old issues. We have seen this dance before. Uh, and I think the fundamental cause of these, of these issues coming out again after so many years is internal to Malaysia. Um, the substance of these two issues, Slita, the Slita FEO issue and the Port Limits issue, is ridiculous actually. Uh, and the Malaysians know it. It's not as if they don't know it. Um, the fundamental cause is the incoherence of the new ruling coalition in Malaysia. Uh, it began to fall apart within a week of it being formed. You could see the fishes uh, appearing when Dr. Mahathir made his first appointments as a finance minister, as AG, right? And it has not got better since then. In fact, it's got worse. You can see differences within Kaadilan, between different factions. You can see differences between some factions of Kaadilan and Bersatu. You can see differences between the Malay parts of the coalition and the DAP. And you can see, of course, differences between Pakatan Harapan and Barisan National, and in particular, AMNO. Uh, and this is not going to go away. And it is a time-tested tactic of Malaysia over many years and many governments that when their politics get incoherent as they are now, we are a useful rallying point, particularly to, for the leaders to rally their Malay ground. And the difference is, and the reason for this is something I mentioned in my initial presentation. We are organized in a diametrically opposed way to the way Malaysia is organized. Therefore, our very uh, existence is a kind of criticism of the system, especially as we do better, and therefore it is a good rallying point to attack us and to be tough against us. That's a fact of life. Uh, I don't see the Malaysian political system becoming any more coherent anytime soon. Dr. Mahathir is on record as saying they didn't expect to win and therefore cannot keep all the promises <laughs> they, uh, they, they gave, they made. You know, he said it publicly, it's not me, right? Uh, and you know, whatever you accuse him of, you cannot accuse him of not being frank, <laughs> open and transparent <laughs> in that sense. So it's not going to stop and therefore the bilateral tensions are not going to stop. To have a solution to issues, both sides must want a solution. It takes two to tango, to use a cliche, and I do not see Malaysia seeing its interest in resolving these issues. So, what role will ASEAN play? Not very much. Mm. Well, uh, thank you. <laughs> the, uh, well, thank you. Um, now, I'm going to ask Pak Mati a question. Um, Pak Mati, you uh, spoke about um, the contributions of ASEAN, what it has done, the platforms, it has built confidence-building measures, and so on, and several things that have come on board. I have to say that when 
I look at Indonesia, Indonesia offered a lot of leadership when you were foreign minister and during the time you know, of uh, President Yudhoyono's government. Rightly or wrongly, I think uh, Indonesia is today seen as less interested in sort of pushing, being proactive in ASEAN, pushing ideas and you know, seeking to resolve things. Um, would you care to comment on that? Well, uh, sorry. I began at the beginning by suggesting that there is this convergence between local, national, regional, global, essentially internal and external domain. Uh, governments uh, past in Indonesia have always had to, especially the foreign ministry, have always had to uh, manage the linkage between the two, uh, internal and external domain, especially to reject the notion that they are either or in nature, that a government can simply do one at a time. They have internal priorities rather than external or external inclinations rather than internal. Uh, we have been striving hard in the past, I can only speak of the past, to ensure that the two of them are seen to be complementary. That doing ASEAN for Indonesian foreign policy uh, is not uh, an option uh, you, that you can choose to have or not to have, but it's actually in our uh, inherent and strategic national interest. And let me give by way of example how we manage to, um, some examples how we manage to, to suggest that synergy. When Indonesia underwent democratic transformation in 1998, obviously we, were, we had multi-dimensional crisis to manage. The most natural time uh, for Indonesia to be internally consumed because we had enough on our plate. But at the time, Indonesian leadership at the time of which I was assisting on ASEAN, we instead made the case precisely because internal developments are so all-consuming, we needed to be even more proactive externally to ensure climate-conducive, benign regional atmosphere. And hence, when Singapore in 2002 proposed the idea of ASEAN economic community, Indonesia was the one who suggested we need to complement this with political security community, including introducing the notions of human rights, good governance, etc., to ensure that the changes that's taking place in Indonesia goes hand in hand with changes taking place in the region. Complementarity and synergy. Likewise, in 2011, before Indonesia chaired ASEAN, there was a school of thought in Indonesia that speaks of ASEAN no longer being the cornerstone of Indonesian foreign policy, some people say Indonesia has outgrown ASEAN, we need to do the world rather than simply be stuck with ASEAN. We provided a response through the ASEAN Bali Concord Tree, namely ASEAN in a global community of nations. Again, suggesting as if 
we can whistle and walk at the same time. Constantly promoting and nurturing the synergy between internal and external. I'm not sure currently to what extent the current government, the current situation in Indonesia is able to promote that notion of external and internal are one coherent uh, package. And therefore, there is sometimes, and this could be more perception rather than reality, uh, as if it's an either-or proposition. Uh, you know, I mean, to the point that Bilhari mentioned earlier about ASEAN being a tool, uh, exactly that. But in a way, for, ASEAN, for Indonesia, and maybe this is almost to a fault, uh, my own, probably, uh, highly like probably, it's always the ASEAN option first. Somehow, whether it be developments on the Rohingya situation, 2012, Thailand, Cambodia, uh, 2011, our natural, natural inclination is first and foremost, make sure we use the ASEAN path. Because then we feel, although the problem itself may remain problematic, at least ASEAN is empowered. We'll draw lessons learned from ASEAN's shortcomings. Uh, but if we begin, as I sometimes sense now, to stop, start shopping about elsewhere before first and foremost developing the ASEAN capacity, uh, this is where I think a sense of neglect may develop. Uh, but it may be more perception rather than reality. Uh, just one follow-on of the uh, last point you mentioned, that for instance in dealing with the Rohingya question, you know, using the ASEAN option would be uh, important. Uh, but it applies to other issues too. Would you not say using ASEAN strengthens the uh, push, the leadership? Whereas if countries go in bilaterally, it weakens the you know, attempt to solve the problem. Well, there, there is not a one-size-fits-all. Uh, we can't, as Pa. Uh, Bilhari would have suggested in terms of ASEAN being a tool, we can't force an ASEAN solution for every problem that we face. But when we speak of challenge in our region, it is only natural, first and foremost, we must find an ASEAN home for it. And um, in, in 2011, initially it began in 2008, when Thailand, Cambodia had a problem, we quickly consolidated ASEAN's position, and by the time the Security Council meet, we have an ASEAN script. We simply ask the Security Council, please rally around what we are trying to do. We may not succeed, but we have a, a way out, potentially. I'm not sure what is now the script on Rohingya at the UN. Indonesia is currently sitting in the United Nations Security Council, no doubt extremely in anticipation of when this issue is brought, could be brought to the United Nations again, then the, it will have to deal with different dynamics. Mm -hmm. The internal Indonesian dynamics, and there is a very strong uh, position within Indonesian uh, political body on the issue. The ASEAN dynamics, Indonesia and ICC dynamics, 
what is our view on referral by the Security Council to the ICC. Those type of three dynamics could be divergent in the absence of a holistic, preemptive approach. Thank you. Uh, Bilahari, your second question. Um, you said ASEAN couldn't play a role in the Malaysia-Singapore disputes. I agree with you. But uh, you alluded to Singapore's identity, the uh, pressures, and how we tried to uh, create a, our, an identity of our own right in the beginning in 1965 on. Uh, looking at the rising pressures really is about the rise of China, you know, United, role of the United States, and so on. Do you see ASEAN playing a role to help mitigate the tensions, you know, um, create a platform for discussion which could move us away from the Cold War or Cold Peace? Well, look, I think let me give some perspective to this question, right? ASEAN was born in the middle of the Cold War when the Cold War in Southeast Asia was hot, not cold. In fact, it was a far more dangerous period because it was a period of kinetic conflict. There was a real war going on. Uh, ASEAN successfully navigated that. Uh, as Patmati said, we were able to take some bold decisions, including the decision to form ASEAN, which is not a self-evident uh, kind of... Uh, decision. And it has been quite successful. So the first thing we have to do is to keep calm. You know, this is not the worst we have faced. So if we are calm, if we are bold, if we are resolute, we can cope with it. Don't lose confidence. That said, I think I should remind everybody, Pat Mati knows this very well, of a Indonesian slogan that was used a lot in the 70s, 80s, but has somehow fallen out of the ASEAN lexicon. And this is that national resilience enhances regional resilience and regional resilience enhances national resilience. That is the ASEAN idea in essence. In other words, the, uh, Mr. Rajaranam said it in a somewhat different way in his opening speech when ASEAN was formed, when the Bangkok Declaration, you know, he said, henceforth, the regional interest must be some part of our national interest. Essentially the same idea. There is no contradiction between your national interests, no necessary contradiction, and your regional interests. I mean, the balance between these two elements will not always be the same. It will differ from it, for issue to issue. Now, I think we have to admit that... Uh, that sense that was very strong, despite all our differences, and those were great differences between the original five members, huh? uh, but they had that sense, huh? has now weakened right? for a variety of reasons. One reason being our very success. A lot of things that we did to keep the peace, to mitigate conflicts even if we can't solve them, to navigate the even greater dangers of the real Cold War, uh, are now taken for granted, right? We, I think some newer members perhaps may not understand fully or have internalized fully how important ASEAN was in bringing the region to where it is today. Second, I think the domestic politics 
of um, all the ASEAN members has changed. Uh, let me say uh, a very politically incorrect thing. Part of the reason that ASEAN was able to take very bold decisions and act on them over the long term in its initial years, initial crucial formative years until the end of the 80s, is that none of the original members were democracies. Yeah. <laughs> ah, okay. Yeah. Uh, there are many, many disabilities, the authoritarian systems, but you cannot be denied that they can take a long-term view of things. <laughs> now, if they take the wrong long-term view of things, it's disastrous. But if they take the right long-term view of things, it is not. Now, we all have more pluralistic political systems, and there are many advantages to that, but the imperatives on ASEAN leaders are entirely different. Sometimes, it's not that they don't know what to do, they just don't know how to do it, and get elected again. Okay, thank you. Uh, now, I know you are dying to ask questions. Uh, would you just care to comment on this, Mark? Well, uh, on uh, yeah. ASEAN and, uh, and dealing yeah. with the US China. Oh, yes, US China. Yeah. Uh, I think you mentioned something in your speech. Absolutely. Yes, I, I have mentioned it already. And yeah. then essentially, uh, to underscore that. The, the point that Pabila Hari mentioned earlier, uh, for us not to lose confidence, uh, that we have a capacity at least to have them all in one, under one tent uh, through various forums that we have created. But we need to be more than simply bring them in under one tent, but we need to provide a certain narrative, certain uh, uh, principles that they must rally around uh, and the like. But the, the, the last point that Pablo Harry mentioned about democracies, and well, I guess I would put it a different way in the sense <laughs> that we recognize that governments have competing, uh, competing demands and expectations, and, and this is where, that, again, that connection between local, national, regional, global, economic, political, social, etc., makes it even more imperative uh, for the exercise of leadership. I mean... I don't know, there are many, some deficits around. I mentioned one is a trust deficit. Uh, but another potential deficit that could arguably be made is of cooperative leadership. Uh, I believe that ultimately democracy uh, is stronger, uh, but in terms of being able to carry out certain decisions, but you need to have on board all the constituencies. And, and here is where uh, leadership matters. Uh, the leaders of the country's concern must have the courage to present the situation as it is and how we should be addressing them. But um, it's, it's more easier said than done, I guess. Thank you. Right, now we are ready to take questions from the floor. Can I have the first question? You've silenced everybody. Either there, we can't see them. I can't see. The, is anyone standing yes, up? Please? Yes. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you for your candid remarks, uh, Mr. Kausikan. It's always welcome. Who are you? Please, can you identify oh, yourself? My name is Angie. Huh? Angie Chu. Uh, I'm not representing any organization. 
So I'd like to uh, just ask the question about the concerns with the escalation, at least in words, between Singapore and Malaysia, because our young men are being put on alert whenever the governments are arguing. And with the recent loss of uh, Aloysius Pang, uh, I would like to share that as a parent, we're all very concerned about the safety of our children, especially our boys. And leadership comes with accountability. And what is your view in terms of accountability, both in terms of words that are spoken and the lives of our young men being put at risk, not for war, but a practice? And this has been ongoing. Many lives have been lost. So coming back to home, if we're going to have a safe, united nation within Singapore, we need transparency. Thank you. Is that a question or a statement? <laughs> and if it's a question, is it a question on foreign policy or is it a question on national service? Well, I'll try to answer it in both, all right? Look, there are going to be tensions because of the inheriting contradictions of Singapore in Southeast Asia. And because this is an existential state of affairs, you're going to need a strong deterrent capability. Uh, to have a strong de deterrent capability, you will have to have realistic training. And the hard fact is, I'm not making light of training accidents, is that training accidents, despite all precautions you take, are going to happen. There is no substitute for deterrence, given the environment we live in. All of us, the males anyway, have gone through national service, and I can see I was enlisted in the Army first in 1971, and I left the Reserve when I was 50 years old, uh, old which is unfortunately not so long ago. I Still not so long ago, but say long. more than well, long enough. But I, over that time, I can see training safety standards being raised. It is very, very taken very seriously. So I don't think you should confuse two things. You know, when there are tensions with Malaysia in particular, we need to demonstrate that uh, there is a limit before, beyond which they should not go. They know this very well. Uh, and we don't have demonstrate that from time to time. And that demonstration in terms depends on the broader context of having a strong deterrent force. Uh, things will more likely get out of hand than less likely. Now that said, I don't think MINDEF has been untransparent about this last or previous incidents. Uh, but this tragedy just happened quite recently. I believe a committee of inquiry will be uh, instituted, and I think the results of that common com uh, committee of inquiry will be made public. So I will ask you to reserve your judgment and not confuse two things that are quite separate. National service policy, realistic training is vital because without that, there is no deterrence. If there's no deterrence, bilateral tensions will get worse, not better. Well, thank you. Uh, another question? 
Hi, uh, yes, I am one of the young men previously mentioned. Yes, um, my name is Mark Chan from SJI. And I was wondering, um, as you know, the, China has been using its influence over the Mekong River to export its influence to many Southeast Asian countries like Vietnam and Laos. So does ASEAN have a sort of central uh, policy or stance regarding China's um, infiltration? Thank you. Um, I will allow both uh, speakers to answer, but me, would you like to have a short well, first comment? I think one of the one feature of ASEAN today and in the past is that um, individual ASEAN member states have different foreign policy orientations. I think as ASEAN has never pretended to bring together countries of you know, similar or monolithic foreign policy outlook. We've had in ASEAN, within ASEAN countries that are aligned during the Cold War, aligned to the, to the West, aligned to the East, and in some that are independent. And now, of course, with the dominant dynamics within, us, within the region of US-China, different ASEAN countries have uh, different inclinations and orientations. Some are closer to China, for instance, by way of your question, than others. But it is not necessarily a problem as long as we are able to continue to ensure that when it matters, when collective decisions uh, need to be made that places the region's collective interests, such different interpretations or, or, or orientations by ASEAN member states should not come in the way of reaching common ASEAN position. Uh, that's easier said than done. And in the past, and no doubt in the future, there will be occasions when ASEAN is divided. I am most uh, familiar to, uh, with one episode in 2012 on China, well, on the South China Sea, uh, when ASEAN for the first time at the time failed at the end of its conference to adopt a chairman's statement. But the distinguishing feature of that particular episode is that we only allowed it to continue for 48 hours. Each ASEAN member states felt agitated and felt concerned by this state of affairs. And we quickly restore ASEAN unity and ASEAN common position. What worries me now is not necessarily China per se, but what worries me a little bit is when division becomes the new normal, uh, when we have divisions in outlook and we simply assume that this is a, a normal state of affairs and then we move on to different issues and topics without resolving that problem. I think that will undermine potentially ASEAN's credibility because ASEAN can only be central, can only be the provider of the common goods in our region, namely security and prosperity, if the major, so-called major powers uh, recognize that ASEAN can act independently on 
in the interest of the collective uh, interest of the region uh, and beyond. Would you like to yes. add? Um, first of all, Mati is too modest. The man who saved the day on that sad occasion in 2012 is Pak Mati. Now, China is a major power that is contiguous to Southeast Asia. That's a fact. Therefore, China is going to always exercise significant influence in Southeast Asia. That's also a fact. But significant influence is not the same as dominant influence, let alone exclusive influence. Uh, with maybe only one exception that I can think, every country in ASEAN, while wanting a good relationship with China, does not want to surrender, complete surrender autonomy to China. And as Park Mati pointed out, it is a historical fact that Southeast Asia has never been able to dom be dominated by any single power. Uh, the US-China relationship is a complicated one. It is a serious but unfortunately very common mistake to think of it in purely binary terms. Southeast Asia is a naturally bi uh, multipolar region. That is the natural state of affairs. Uh, there will be China, it will always have significant influence. India is another major power contiguous to Southeast Asia. It will exercise increasing influence. I don't see any sign of, China, of the US in retreat. It's redefining its interest in Southeast Asia, but not leaving the region. You have Japan, you have Australia, you have EU. You know, it is a naturally multipolar region. What does that mean? That means there is a chance there's, it has the opportunity, there is a structural opportunity for the countries of Southeast Asia to exercise their agency. There is maneuver room for ASEAN, provided we have the wit and the courage to take it. On the Mekong specifically, that's part of a geopolitical fact. The headwaters of the Mekong live, uh, are in China, you're not going to shift them, right? And the Mekong flows through half of ASEAN, that's a fact but it's not something that is going to unfold in a mechanistic way. And I think that's the essential point Pak Mati is trying to make and, and I'm also trying to make. Another question? Uh, I yeah. have one here. Yes. Oh, there, there, right, there. Thanks. Thank you. And there's another one there. Um, okay. The one in. at the back first and the person on the left. The back first, please. Okay. Yeah, okay. it's your turn. Oh, my turn first? My oh, it's you, you're in front. No, yeah. who am I seeing now? I can't see anything. I can't <laughs> see a thing. The person waving uh, the baton, next one. <laughs> are you speaking? No, you are not. Okay, uh, okay the guy. Okay, the two guy in the middle, the then I saw the person there first. Right. So it's one, two, and the three at the back, all right? Oh, wow. Okay. Can you please start? <laughs> yes. A uh, short uh, question, short answers, eh? but sharp. Yeah. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah, um, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Stephen Cairns. I'm from the Future Cities Laboratory. Yes, um, yes Stephen. We are uh, obviously planners and we're very practical 
and we know that we operate inside the geopolitical discussion that you've, you framed. So I'm wondering if, uh, if you wouldn't mind taking a kind of a sort of more practical approach to this question. And in a way, I'm asking the question that was raised this morning by Mr. Lee from Capital Land, and he was lamenting uh, the fact that young business people, specifically Singaporean business people, would develop their career through New York and London rather than Jakarta and Manila, for example. So in a way, I'd like to raise the question about Singapore, uh, uh, ASEAN, not as an instrument, and I understand that's a diplomatic term, but not as an instrument, but in a way as a more organic community, and whether the soft uh, relationships between culture, shared history, and maybe even the infrastructure that would support those connections, coming back to my field, whether that is part of the future of the development of ASEAN. Thank you. The short answer is I hope so. <laughs> I think we are moving in that direction, not evenly and perhaps not fast enough, but certainly it must be part of the future. Well, when we, if we go by the various plans and plans of actions and visions that, that ASEAN has produced, uh, clearly there is a recognition uh, that ASEAN must be, in the words of ASEAN, uh, in the ASEAN's parlance, uh, more people-oriented, uh, people-centered, and this implies, amongst others, uh, for in the economic and social domain, uh, the promotion of a greater sense of community and of relevance by ASEAN. Uh, but clearly, this is still very much, uh, uh, you know, work in progress uh, within ASEAN, and it's important for the practitioners, I, I believe out there to be able to identify where the real gaps are because otherwise uh, officials will tend to keep on churning new uh, supposed new commitments and the like and yet there is a disconnect between the documents that ASEAN produces and the reality uh, on the ground and it would be wonderful if there could be you know a real clear identification of where the gaps are because at the moment uh, being ASEAN uh, is, is uh, not quite as, as self-evident as we wish, we would like to think. Yeah. Thank you, Marty. It's much easier to move political, social, trade things, Stephen, harder on the cultural, social, slower. I think it's gaming and at the back, it's... Uh, I can't see, but there's somebody at the back. Yes. Thank uh, you, um, Professor Chan. Actually, my question is very short. Please, Gay. Okay, <laughs> it's very similar to the one that was just asked. So I'll bring it one step further, perhaps. Um, which was that ASEAN is a, has been successful as um, organization of nations, but what about the people? And I know that there has been. Uh, the People's Forum, ASEAN People's Forum, which I have attended. But it seems to me it's just, um, it's just a token. Uh, and um, uh, okay, maybe I should ask in the context of Singapore, Mr. Bilahari did mention that Singapore is an outlier in ASEAN. I, I assume he's talking about the na Singapore as a nation. But does that mean that Singaporeans have to be outliers in ASEAN as well? Obviously, Singaporeans are not just 
Well, obviously so not. I mean, okay. obviously not. Sorry to cut you short, but we want to have more questions. Obviously not. The point so, is this. Okay, what the, are you going to do about it? The point is this. I, the point is this. The, I agree with you about the ASEAN People's Forum because it is mainly, uh, is mainly attended by NGOs, and NGOs may be closer to the people, but they are not the people either. Don't forget that. Huh? When I say that our politics is getting more pluralistic, going forward, there must be a better, broader public understanding of the importance of ASEAN. I mean, people like Mati and me and Heng Chi and others, we know it. But I don't think every Singaporean knows it. How do we get this across? I'm not sure, uh, but I'm sure we need to do more and we do, what we are doing now, we don't do very well and not enough. Yeah, okay. Uh, the uh, next question. Yes. My name is Thomas. Um, my question is that... Oh, it's Thomas of, Thomas. Thomas. Yes. Uh, NGO, peoples. Uh, okay. uh, I think the question <laughs> is that both of you speakers have talked about ASEAN being vital and useful and helpful. What are suggestions to make it more effective and to make it role more uh, for that people-centered and people-orientated. How and to also make to manage more people-centered, more people-oriented. Well, uh, when the leaders of ASEAN 2003-2005 promulgated the ASEAN community with the pillar, the three pillars of economic, social, cultural, and economic, it was with the purpose of ensuring uh, the relevance of ASEAN in the most comprehensive manner. Uh, but clearly, since we have been privy, we have been, we continue to hear of such comments and, and concerns about the relevance of ASEAN, it is still something that needs to be further uh, promoted. Uh, earlier, most of the time today, we've been speaking more of the political security domain, and I did suggest, for instance, uh, the need for ASEAN to empower the East Asia Summit in terms of uh, its relevance in crisis management, its relevance in, in reducing trust, uh, I mean, to promoting trust amongst members of, members of, the, uh, of the countries of the region. But in the, in the, in the socio-cultural domain, I think this is, we need to proceed with a, great, a, a bit more uh, sensitivity. Sometimes... Um, We don't wish to see a situation where governments suffocate the process. Uh, there comes a time when the peoples of ASEAN themselves must uh, take the lead, actually, in, in presenting what concerns them and, and the kind of uh, cooperation that they wish to see promoted. Because uh, if it's left to governments, then we will yet again come up with all kinds of action plans when there is no sense of ownership uh, within, the, within uh, the peoples of ASEAN. Uh, for instance, one issue that I've been thinking for a bit recently, uh, when I read all the various ASEAN documents, I, I see the views of states as a collective entity. I don't get a sense of what being ASEAN is, being ASEAN peoples. It would be great if the so-called peoples of ASEAN, are able to identify certain traits, certain outlook, which makes them feel that they belong to one common family, uh, outlook to do with tolerance, for instance, outlook to do with di uh, respecting diversity, celebrating diversity, 
outlook to do with innovation and the like. But uh, in this case, sometimes less can be more. Uh, the last thing we would want is to have governments um, suffocate and overwhelm a process that must be inherently people-driven, not only people-centered, but actually people-driven as well. Thank you. Now, we're coming to the end of the session. I have a little more than two minutes, and I thought I would go back to the speakers and ask them to sum up in about one and a half minutes each. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. I think the crucial thing about ASEAN going forward is what Pak Mati just said. As the as the regional environment and the broader regional environment becomes more complex, the decisions that ASEAN is going to have to be take will become more complicated and more complex. To do that, and as governments become more pluralistic or democratic in different forms, uh, they have to have the support of the people to take those difficult decisions. Are we there yet? No, we are not. Must we get there? Yes, we must. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, Mark? Well, Thank you very much. I, I, I will be a little bit more uh, specific, if I may, on this, on this phase. Uh, I wish to share the idea that it is extremely important now for ASEAN to come up with concrete, I'm, I'm speaking here on the Indo-Pacific in particular, with concrete policy actionable initiatives. It is no longer time now to open up the Pandora's box to ponder and wonder what Indo-Pacific means, etc. Because things happen in the world, and we will be uh, we will be left behind. And in this connection, I will once again make an appeal to empower the East Asia Summit. It is already there. It is already inherently Indo-Pacific, but we need to treat it with greater, uh, make it more relevant specifically in two areas. One is to promote the notion of a treaty of amity and cooperation-like framework for the wider East Asia Pacific, East Asia Summit countries, non-use of force, peaceful settlement of disputes, not only among ASEAN countries, which is now thankfully all set up, but this time to externalize the ASEAN experience, connect the outer dots, a TAC between China and the United States, a TAC between Japan and Korea, between China and India. There is a clear, manifestly important contribution by ASEAN using an instrument that we already have. And the second one is a crisis management capacity. Things happen in this world that do not await summits, and it is important for ASEAN to develop such a crisis management capacity through the East Asia Summit once again. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Pak Mati. I will just sum up in 30 seconds, actually. We've had a very rich session. This is a broad session because it is about Singapore re interacting with the region, Singapore interacting with the world through the region, and also the region interacting with the rest of the world. And we've touched on ASEAN, and we've touched on ASEAN and US-China relations, and also what ASEAN can do to strengthen itself. And apart from analysis, and both speakers 
gave very good analysis of the situations, but we also had uh, re policy recommendations, something that's quite concrete. So, thank you. I join me again, please, to thank the speakers.